Section 33 of the Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy, the Warren Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy, the Warren Commission Report, by the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy. Chapter 6, Investigation of Possible Conspiracy, Part 10. Oswald's Finances. In search of activities or payments demonstrating the receipt of unexplained funds, the Commission undertook a detailed study of Oswald's receipts and expenditures, starting with the date of his return from the Soviet Union on June 13, 1962, and continuing to the date of his arrest on November 22, 1963. In Appendix 14, there appears a table listing Oswald's estimated receipts and expenditures on a monthly basis during this period. The Commission was assisted in this phase of the investigation by able investigators of the Internal Revenue Service of the Department of the Treasury and by agents of the FBI. The investigation extended far beyond interrogation of witnesses who appeared before the Commission. At banks in New Orleans, Louisiana, Fort Worth, Dallas, Houston, and Laredo, Texas, Inquiries were made for any record of a checking, savings, or loan account, or a safe deposit box, rented in the names of Lee Harvey Oswald, his known aliases, or members of his immediate family. In many cases, a photograph of Oswald was exhibited to bank officials who were in a position to see a person in the safe deposit box area of their banks. No bank account or safe deposit boxes were located which could be identified with Oswald during this period of his life, although evidence was developed of a bank account which he had used prior to his trip to the Soviet Union in 1959. Telegraph companies were checked for the possibility of money orders that may have been sent to Oswald. All known locations where Oswald cashed checks which he received were queried as to the possibility of his having cashed other checks there. Further inquiries were made at Oswald's places of employment, his residences, and with local credit associations, hospitals, utility companies, state and local government offices, post offices, periodicals, newspapers, and employment agencies. Marina Oswald testified that she knew of no sources of income for Oswald other than his wages and his unemployment compensation. No evidence of other cash income has been discovered. The Commission has found that the funds known to have been available to Oswald during the period June 13, 1962 through November 22, 1963, were sufficient to cover all of his known expenditures during this period including cash on hand of $63 when he arrived from the Soviet Union, the Oswalds received a total of $3,665.89 in cash from wages, unemployment compensation benefits, loans, and gifts from acquaintances. His cash disbursements during this period were estimated at $3,501.79, leaving a balance of $164.10. 
See Appendix 14. This estimated balance is within $19 of the $183.87 in cash, which was actually in Oswald's possession at the time of his arrest, consisting of $13.87 on his person and $170 in his wallet left at the Payne House. In computing Oswald's expenditures, estimates were made for food, clothing, and incidental expenses. The incidental expenses included telephone calls, the cost of local newspapers, money order and check cashing fees, postage, local transportation costs, personal care goods and services, and other such small items. All of these expenses, including food and clothing, were estimated at a slightly higher figure than would be normal for a family with the income of the Oswalds, and probably higher than the Oswalds actually spent on such items. This was done in order to be certain that even if some of Oswald's minor expenditures were not known, he had adequate funds to cover his known expenditures. During the 17-month period preceding his death, Oswald's pattern of living was consistent with his limited income. He lived with his family in furnished apartments, whose cost, including utilities, ranged from about $60 to $75 per month. Witnesses testified to his wife's disappointment and complaints, and to their own shock and misgivings about several of the apartments in which the Oswalds lived during this period. Moreover, the Oswalds, particularly Marina, frequently lived with relatives and acquaintances at no cost. Oswald and his family lived with his brother Robert, and then with Marguerite Oswald, from June until sometime in August 1962. As discussed previously, Marina Oswald lived with Elena Hall, and spent a few nights at the Taylor's house during October of 1962. In November of that same year, Marina Oswald lived with two families. When living away from his family, Oswald rented rooms for $7 and $8 per week, or stayed at the YMCA in Dallas, where he paid $2.25 per day. During late April and early May 1963, Oswald lived with relatives in New Orleans, while his wife lived with Ruth Payne in Irving, Texas. From September 24, 1963, until November, Marina Oswald stayed with Ruth Payne while Oswald lived in rooming houses in Dallas. During the period Marina Oswald resided with others, neither she nor her husband made any contribution to her support. The Oswalds owned no major household appliances, had no automobile, and resorted to dental and hospital clinics for medical care. Acquaintances purchased baby furniture for them, and paid dental bills in one instance. After his return to the United States, Oswald did not smoke or drink, and he discouraged his wife from doing so. Oswald spent much of his time reading books which he obtained from the public library, and periodicals to which he subscribed. He resided near his place of employment, and used buses to travel to and from work. When he visited his wife and the children on weekends in October and November 1963, he rode in a neighbor's car, making no contribution for gasoline or other expenses. Oswald's personal wardrobe was also very modest. 
He customarily wore T-shirts, cheap slacks, well-worn sweaters, and well-used zipper jackets. Oswald owned one suit, of Russian make and purchase, poor-fitting and of a heavy fabric, which, despite its unsuitability to the climates of Texas and Louisiana, and his obvious discomfort, he wore on the few occasions that required dress. Food for his family was extremely meager. Paul Gregory testified that during the six weeks that Marina Oswald tutored him, he took the Oswalds shopping for food and groceries on a number of occasions, and that he was amazed at how little they bought. Their friends in the Dallas-Fort Worth area frequently bought them food and groceries. Marina testified that her husband ate very little. He never had breakfast, he just drank coffee and that is all. Not because he was trying to economize, simply he never liked to eat. She estimated that when he was living by himself in a rooming house, he would spend about a dollar, a dollar thirty for dinner, and have a sandwich and soft drink for lunch. The thrift which Oswald exercised in meeting his living expenses allowed him to accumulate sufficient funds to meet other expenses which he incurred after his return from the Soviet Union. From his return until January of 1963, Oswald repaid the $435.71 he had borrowed from the State Department for the travel expenses from Moscow, and the $200 loan he had obtained from his brother Robert to fly from New York to Dallas upon his return to this country. He completed the retirement of the debt to his brother in October 1962. His cash receipts from all sources from the day of his arrival in Fort Worth through October 1962 aggregated $719.94, it is estimated that he could have made the repayments to Robert and met his other known expenses and still have been left with a savings of $122.06 at the end of that month. After making initial $10 monthly payments to the State Department, Oswald paid the government $190 in December and $206 in January, thus liquidating that debt. From his net earning of $805.96 from November through January, plus his prior savings, Oswald could have made these payments to the State Department, met his other known expenses, and still have had a balance of $8.59 at the end of January 1963. In discussing the repayment of these debts, Marina Oswald testified, of course we did not live in luxury, we did not buy anything that was not absolutely needed, because Lee had to pay his debt to Robert and to the government, but it was not particularly difficult. Included in the total figure for Oswald's disbursements were $21.45 for the rifle used in the assassination, and $31.22 for the revolver with which Oswald shot Officer Tippett. The major portion of the purchase price for these weapons was paid in March 1963, when Oswald had finished paying his debts, and the purchases were compatible with the total funds then available to him. During May, June, and July of 1963, Oswald spent approximately $23 for circulars, application blanks, and membership cards for his one-man New Orleans chapter of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. 
In August, he paid two dollars to one and possibly two young men to assist in passing out circulars, and then paid a ten-dollar court fine after pleading guilty to a charge of disturbing the peace. Although some of these expenditures were incurred after Oswald lost his job on July 19, 1963, his wages during June and July and his unemployment compensation thereafter provided sufficient funds to enable him to finance these activities out of his own resources. Although Oswald paid his own bus fare to New Orleans on April 24, 1963, his wife and the baby were taken there at no cost to Oswald by Ruth Payne. Similarly, Ruth Payne drove to New Orleans in September and brought Marina Oswald and the baby back to Irving, Texas. Oswald's uncle, Charles Murat, also paid for the short trip taken by Oswald and his family from New Orleans to Mobile, Alabama, on July 27, 1963. It is estimated that when Oswald left for Mexico City in September 1963, he had accumulated slightly over $200. Marina Oswald testified that when he left for Mexico City, he had a little over $100, though she may not have taken into account the $33 unemployment compensation check which Oswald collected after her departure from New Orleans. In any event, expenses in Mexico have been estimated as approximately $85, based on transportation costs of $50 and a hotel expense of about $1.28 per day. Oswald ate inexpensively, and allowing $15 for entertainment and miscellaneous items, it would appear that he had the funds available to finance the trip. The Commission has considered the testimony of Leonard E. Hutchison, proprietor of Hutch's Market in Irving, in connection with Oswald's finances. Hutchinson has testified that on a Friday during the first week in November, a man he believes to have been Lee Harvey Oswald attempted to cash a two-party or personal check for $189, but that he refused to cash the check since his policy is to cash personal checks for no more than $25. Oswald is not known to have received a check for this amount from any source. On Friday, November 1st, Oswald did cash a Texas Unemployment Commission check for $33 at another supermarket in Irving, so that a possible explanation of Hutchison's testimony is that he refused to cash this $33 check for Oswald and is simply in error as to the amount of the instrument. However, since the check cashed at the supermarket was issued by the State Comptroller of Texas, it is not likely that Hutchison could have confused it with a personal check. Examination of Hutchison's testimony indicates that a more likely explanation is that Oswald was not in his store at all. Hutchison testified that the man who attempted to cash this check was a customer in his store on previous occasions. In particular, Hutchison recalled that the man, accompanied by a woman he believes was Marina Oswald and an elderly woman, were shopping in his store in October or November of 1963, on a night he feels certain was a Wednesday evening. Oswald, however, is not known to have been in Irving on any Wednesday evening during this period. Neither of the two checkers at the market recall such a visit by a person matching the description provided by Hutchison, and both Marina Oswald and Marguerite Oswald deny that they were ever in Hutchison's store. 
Hutchison further stated that the man made irregular calls at his grocery between 7.20 a.m. and 7.45 a.m. on weekday mornings, and always purchased cinnamon rolls and a full gallon of milk. However, the evidence indicates that, except for rare occasions, Oswald was in Irving only on weekends. Moreover, Buell Wesley Frazier, who drove Oswald to and from Irving on these occasions, testified that on Monday mornings he picked Oswald up at a point which is many blocks from Hutchison's store, and ordinarily by 7.20 a.m., Hutchison also testified that Ruth Payne was an occasional customer in his store. However, Mrs. Payne indicated that she was not in the store as often as Hutchison testified, and her appearance is dissimilar to the description of the woman Hutchison stated was Mrs. Payne. In light of the strong reasons for doubting the correctness of Hutchison's testimony, and the absence of any other sign that Oswald ever possessed a personal check for $189, the Commission was unable to conclude that he ever received such a check. The Commission has also examined a report that not long before the assassination, Oswald may have received unaccounted funds through money orders sent to him in Dallas. Five days after the assassination, C. A. Hamden, early night manager for the Western Union Telegraph Company in Dallas, told his superior that about two weeks earlier he remembered Oswald sending a telegram from the office to Washington, D.C., possibly to the Secretary of the Navy, and that the application was completed in an unusual form of hand printing. The next day, Hamden told a magazine correspondent who was in the Western Union office on other business that he remembered seeing Oswald in the office on prior occasions, collecting money orders for small amounts of money. Soon thereafter, Hamden signed a statement relating to both the telegram and the money orders, and specifying two instances in which he had seen the person he believed to be Oswald in the office. In each instance, the man had behaved disagreeably, and one other Western Union employee had become involved in assisting him. During his testimony, Hamden did not recall with clarity the statements he had previously made, and was unable to state whether the person he reportedly had seen in the Western Union office was or was not Lee Harvey Oswald. Investigation has disclosed that a second employee does recall one of the occurrences described by Hamden, and believes that the money order in question was delivered to someone at the YMCA, However, he is unable to state whether or not the man involved was Oswald. The employee referred to by Hamden in connection with the second incident feels certain that the unusual episode described by Hamden did not occur and that she at no time observed Oswald in the Western Union office. At the request of federal investigators, officers of Western Union conducted a complete search of their records in Dallas and in other cities, for the period from June through November 1963, for money orders payable to Lee Harvey Oswald or to his known aliases, and for telegrams sent by Oswald or his known aliases. In addition, all money orders addressed to persons at the YMCA in Dallas during October and November 1963 were inspected, and all telegrams handled from November 1st through November 29th 
by the employee who Hamden assertedly saw service Oswald were examined, as were all telegrams sent from Dallas to Washington during November. No indication of any such money order or telegram was found in any of these records. Hamden himself participated in this search and was unable to pin down any of these telegrams or money orders that would indicate it was Oswald. Hamblin's superiors have concluded that this whole thing was a figment of Mr. Hamblin's imagination, and the Commission accepts this assessment. End of section 33. Recording by Maria Casper.